Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, my finest friends. Welcome to the sixth episode of season six of the Tom Petty Project podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Brown. This is the podcast that digs into the entire Tom Petty catalogue, song by song, album by album, and includes conversations with musicians, fans, and people connected with Tom along the way. Um, I hope everyone had an enjoyable break. I'm still on holidays until January 3rd, so I'm still in sort of full sweatpants and too much turkey mode. Um, I was pretty spoiled for Christmas this year. My wife bought me the new Beatles Revolver box set, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, It's my favourite Beatles album, and I would strongly argue that it's probably their best. Um, I've always thought that it's the album that completed the transformation which began with Rubber Soul, in which they went from being, you know, the Fab Four pop superstars to fully become The Beatles, with a capital B. You know, it's eclectic, diverse, intensely creative, and on that upward trajectory that culminated with the White Album via Sgt. Pepper. Um, I also got some gift cards for our local indie record store and picked up a copy of Full Moon Fever. Hey, look, I'm still building my Tom Petty collection on vinyl. Um, Invisible Touch by Genesis. Um, so by Peter Gabriel and something else by the Kinks, which features one of my favorite songs of all time, Waterloo Sunset. It's funny because that album has it has a parallel with the Heartbreakers debut album in that it leaves its strongest song until the end of the track listing. I also got a fantastic Tom Petty art piece that my daughter painted for me, which I've, I've posted on my socials. Um, and I already have a couple of requests for T-shirts and stickers uh, from that design. So I'm going to get the artwork digitized this week and get that up on the store. Um, anyway, let's get back to the reason we're here. Today we're talking about the opener on side two of Southern Accents and quite possibly the least Heartbreakers-esque song the band ever recorded. Uh, Make it better, forget about me. If you're new to the show, there's a link to the song in the episode notes as I don't actually play the music in the episode itself. So go give the song a listen to refresh your memory or to listen to it for the first time and we can dig in. So this one is the last of the three songs co-written with Dave Stewart during the period that he and Tom were hanging out lots together. Make It Better features more session players than any other cut on the album. And so in addition to Dave Stewart, who plays guitar on the track, there are four backing vocalists credited, a trumpet player, and another appearance of Phil Jones on percussion, specifically tambourine in this case. It's also, weirdly, one of the four songs on the album that Tom doesn't play any guitar on in the studio, which is so strange to think about. In point of fact, Tom only plays electric guitar on two tracks on the whole album. So the guitars on this one are provided by Mike Campbell and Dave Stewart, and we'll dig into that once we start talking about the song proper. The song was played 28 times live, according to setlist.fm, all in 1985 on the Southern Accents tour, and it was more than half the time either the show closer or the main set closer before the encore. So the song opens with some sort of programmed synth drum machine sort of noise that feels initially like it might head into Louisiana Rain territory. However, it's cut short as the song comes in quickly with that sort of, you know, that dance groove and the heavily soul-infused guitar lick. And my guess is that it's Dave Stewart playing that main lick in the right channel and Mike in the left channel adding in that sort of customary lead color that he tends to tends to add. We also get Benmont's sumptuous organ and the horns blended together. And where I thought that balance was way off on It Ain't Nothing To Me, it shows that when the organ is added in, as well as the horns, it really fills out that sonic space really, really nicely. So we talk lots on, you know, Damn The Torpedoes, Hard Promises, and even Long After Dark to a certain extent, about Stan Lynch's drum sound and how big and beefy it was. One of the first things that struck me about this song is how different that is on this track. It's not that the kick and snare sound bad or they're not present, but they definitely sound, quote-unquote, different. 
The snare is sharper and it's mixed quite high to really give that sort of dance groove feel, while the kick sounds a little flatter and less full with a really tight reverb so they don't, you know, they don't, the kick drum doesn't boom, but it just keeps that backbeat moving along for the rest of the song. Um, the cymbals are mixed really low throughout the song and used really, really sparingly. You don't really get any of those big crashes pushing into or out of any of the sections. And I'm not sure if he's using a crash at all, really, for, mo for the most part, or it's mixed, like I said, very, very low. So the entire drum track then is driven by the kick, snare, and the hi-hats, with those hat lifts prevalent throughout and the nice, tight, closed hats during the quieter breakdown sections. So this is really typical of the sound they were going for, which is that heavily 80s, Motown-inspired R&B feel. And in the majority of those songs, the drums really are more an accompaniment rather than providing any sort of lead musicality. The simple changes in dynamics is where they move the song around. So going from the verse chorus sections into the bridge sections, you know, in the intro, just the kick and the hats, or in that sort of middle eight with the, with the addition of the side stick, it just keeps it really simple uh, and with those simple sonic shifts that rely on the consistency of the parts rearranged slightly in their emphasis. So a couple of neat things I did notice, though, with Stan's drums. First of all, at the 310 mark, and you've really got to listen for this, after Forget About Me and before Forget About These Eyes, there's a really neat little quadruplet trill on the closed hat that doesn't appear anywhere else in the song. Again, one of those, if you blink, you will miss it. And the second is at 341. In the fill that Stan plays, he starts it on the floor tom, just one hit, before going back to the snare where every other fill lives. Again, it's mixed super low and you can easily miss it, but it's such an odd place to drop it in. It's seemingly in no man's land and not having as much impact as it would somewhere else. Every other fill in this entire song is just snare. Snare and kick, snare and kick with the hi-hats. You know, the guitar lick off the top, it is really cool and it's infectious. And Mike Campbell, as he absolutely always does, finds exactly the right fills to complement the sort of funky little shuffle that Dave Stewart's playing. You can almost imagine peak funkier Prince playing this in an extended jam of medley of covers or something during a live performance. So this lick underpins the chorus, which is how the song starts, rather than with the verse. And I talked about that sort of inversion of structure a little on Don't Come Around Here No More, and it's here again on another Dave Stewart Colwright. The lick drops out in the verse, and you hear Mike's tone change to that really sort of soulful, almost kind of like a surf rock sound. Dave Stewart's part in this section almost like sounds like a, a really clean distortion on a Telecaster or something, with just a little reverb and maybe again some slight echo on it. It's hard to hear the individual guitar parts on this one, though, because the whole sonic palette in this song is pretty full, with that organ sitting as a persistent feature and plenty of percussion. But there's not a ton going on with the guitars. You get that main lick, with Mike adding in those complimentary parts, then switching to that more open, atmospheric feel in the verses. However, this does sort of lull you into a false sense of security because you then get this guitar solo that screams into life. And for a split second, you kind of think it's a heavily processed alto sax or something before you realize it's actually Mike making his guitar sound more like a horn line. But then he starts sliding around like crazy and it's a very reedy, treble-heavy tone to again cut through that sort of saturated sonic palette. So in that solo in the middle eight breakdown that follows is by far my favorite part of this song when the rest of the instrumentation just cuts away and it just leaves the drums, bass, and vocals, repeating those two pairs of lines, forget about me, forget about these eyes, forget about love, say goodbye. And you get Tom's pinched refugee howl delivery through most of the song, but he drops that off initially, um, and you get that sweet syrupy tone that he can use um, with those female backing vocals. But he does go back into that howl over the top of those lines as the section builds back out. And there's some nice sort of phase of flanger on those backing vocals added uh, at the end of each phrase, which again gives it a sort of slightly updated R&B feel to it. So I talked earlier about how I like how the horns and the organ are balanced on this song. And again, I think it's far superior in that aspect to It Ain't Nothing To Me. The horn line itself is cooler and it's less abrasive. I still don't love horns in Heartbreakers music, as I've said before, and I will likely say that again on this album, but I think they work here. 
and I do think it's somewhat because of how Benmont's keyboards augment their sound. If you listen to the organ just before the horns come in in the intro, they're actually playing the harmony parts of that lead horn line. Lots of tremolo on them, um, they've played lower on the keyboard, and so that when those bright horns do come in, you get this wonderful balance between the two parts. In the vocal sections of the song, the tremolo is backed off, and Ben moves up the scale a little bit and plays a little bit higher up the keyboard to really push back into the chorus. And I talk all the time about how good Mike Campbell is at finding exactly the right filler licks and lead lines around the riff, but this song's another example of how brilliant Ben Mont is at exactly the same thing, always complementing that horn line and finding the right sonic space in between. The last thing to talk about instrumentation-wise is Howie's bass, which thumps along really nicely and adds the right groove to the overall feel of the song. It's nothing particularly flashy, um, but it adds a little swing and soul where the drums are sitting on that straight backbeat. So the bottom end has that jump to it because of the way how he's playing his, his bass line. Um, there's a couple of moments coming back out of verses into the chorus that have an almost sort of Ron Blair octave slide feel to them too. So overall, it's a really, really simple bass part that how he nails perfectly. <laughs> Folks, it's time, you know what it's time for, don't you? It's time for some petty trivia, that's right. Um, your question from last week was this. In which country outside the US did Southern accents chart the highest? Was it A, Sweden, B, Australia, C, the UK, or D, New Zealand? So I posted the poll question as usual to Twitter and Facebook and had a wonderful comment left on Facebook by Mariana Munoz, I think I'm saying that right, um, that I wanted to read out. And she says, in Argentina, my husband and nine-year-old daughter and I are Tom's number one Argentinian fans. In our country, we speak a very distinctive Spanish, absolutely different from all Latin America and Spain. And we absolutely understand the heart and soul of this song. So that's a similar connection to the one I have with the song and shows the universality that it has despite being very personal to Tom himself. And thanks, Mariana, from Canada to Argentina. Uh, and congrats on the recent World Cup success of the men's national team. Um, the Twitter poll was really surprising, actually. I expected um, a more even distribution of answers because I didn't think anyone would really know this one off the top of their head. But most of you went for either Australia or UK, having the highest chart position for Southern Accents. A couple of people said New Zealand, and no one went at all went with Sweden. So in ascending order, here are the final chart positions that the album achieved. In Australia, it hit number 53. In New Zealand, number 25. In UK, two places higher at number 23. But in Sweden, Southern Accents reached number 10 in the charts. Your question for this week is this, and it's chart-related again. Southern Accents peaked at number 7 in the US, but which album spent the most weeks at number 1 in the US Billboard chart in 1985? Was it A, Reckless by Brian Adams? B, Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen, C, Brothers in Arms by Dire Straits, or D, No Jacket Required by Phil Collins. Okay, back to the song. Uh, in conversations with Tom Petty, Tom tells Paul Zolo, I hate that song, it's just trash. It was Dave just trying to get me to knock a song out, just write a song for the sake of writing one, and I think that's what it sounds like to me. Now, I wouldn't necessarily say that I hate this song at all, and having listened to it over and over a few times for this episode, I've found plenty that I actually like about it, but I think maybe what Tom's talking about is that it definitely sounds like a lot of different parts put together. Individually, there's some great stuff. It's a catchy guitar hook, the horns are really complimentary, and I don't find them intrusive at all. 
Benmont sitting in the pocket with the organ, Howie uh, and Stan drive the rhythm section along. It's got some really nice harmonies and a pretty decent vocal from Tom, but it still feels like there's something missing. And for me, I think maybe what it is, is it's that heartbreaker's soul. It's so far away from their usual sound and the types of songs that they listen to growing up and, and love and play that it's almost as if they're performing someone else's material and trying really hard to make it sound a little bit more pettyish, if that makes any sense. Also, lyrically, uh, and like It Ain't Nothing To Me, it's a very sort of generic mishmash of non-committal phrases around the idea of Tom wanting to make it better by the person not being with him. Um, but it really sort of lacks the lyrical flourishes you expect from Tom's writing and almost always get. The only line in there that made me think, that's a good little line, is... Honey, you're the judge, there ain't no jury, and I'm just an innocent boy used to feeling guilty. But weirdly, it's also a line out of place in the song because it's accusatory rather than being being conciliatory or resigned, as most of the rest of the song is. So I think it loses a little impact because of that, and it doesn't draw a line under a central idea. It almost sort of takes the meaning of the song off in a completely different direction for like, no discernible reason, right? And it's strange to hear Tom be so vociferous in his dislike for the song, though, especially as it was released as a single. Um, you know, it reached number 54 on the Billboard chart, hit 12 on the US rock chart, but didn't really have an impact anywhere else. And it was also extended into a jam with more, almost kind of like audience interaction during the live performances. And I'll include the live version from the Wiltern in 1985, which is the basis for most of Pack Up the Plantation live. Um, though this track, you know, was omitted from that record release while it was included in the film release. And I expect that that's most likely due to, you know, vinyl release time constraints. You know, and in that performance, Tom looks like he's having fun. Doesn't look like he hates this song. Um, and the stage is invaded at one point by a female fan who clearly doesn't want to forget about Tom. Okay, that's all for this week, folks. That's all, that's all, that's all. You know, I think this track is slightly weaker than the sum of its parts in some ways. And it's one of the few tracks I've reviewed so far that I still don't, I don't really know how I feel about it completely. So this might be one that I do a revisit of sometime. I've already got two or three other songs that I might go back, um, you know, to do a bonus episode about at some point to sort of relook at it and see if I still feel the same way. It has lots of elements that I like, but it definitely does feel a little sort of cobbled together at times. You know, those minor key changes and the sort of sometimes awkward chord progression during those sort of verse sections, it just it just feels slightly often unfinished. And where Don't Come Around Here No More and You're Gonna Get It took the Heartbreakers into new territory in which they really firmly planted their flag and owned the space, I just never feel like they're living in the bones of this song, more sort of wearing it like a light fall coat. The fact that it was never played live again after 85 would suggest that Tom didn't feel it was worth revisiting, and his lambasting of it to Paul Zolo would make it fairly clear that at that point he had no love left for it. Um, but I don't think it's quite as bad as he maybe thinks it is. So I'm going to... I have to say that it's better than It Ain't Nothing to Me, but I don't know if I can bump it up a grade above that. So I'm going to give Make It Better a kind of cautious, undecided, undecided, unresolved 5 out of 10. It's not bad, and I like certain moments in it, but as a whole, it's... It's just definitely no better than a five. It just isn't, to me at least. Um, please remember that you can continue to support humanitarian efforts in Ukraine in many different ways, and I would urge you to do so if you have the means. 
I always add a link to the Red Cross donation page in the episode notes, so you can go there if you don't know where else to go to, to donate to any of those sort of um, programs. Um, as a reminder, the Tom Petty Project is a proud member of the Deep Dive Podcast Network. Go check them out on Twitter at Deep Dive Podnet. I'm sure you'll find something there that you like. They're very good people doing wonderful work and adding new members all the time. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Tom Petty Project and on Twitter at Tom Petty Project. And of course, you can find me on YouTube. So go follow, like, subscribe as applicable, da 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 da, as I say every week. Um, and again, please, you know, tell someone about the podcast. Leave a review, rating is great. That sort of gets us up in the algorithms I, I hear. And we go higher in the charts for whatever that's worth. But um, again, spread the word. Tell people about the podcast if you enjoy it and you think there are other people who listen to Tom Petty who you think might enjoy it too. Keep talking to me on social media. Again, I think I'm going to start reading out some of the comments a little bit because I've not been doing that. Um, mainly just to sort of keep the episodes as tight as I can time-wise. But, you know, you guys take the time to uh, talk to me and interact. So maybe I'll just start throwing some of those into the episodes uh, here and there. Uh, the Tom Petty Project is not affiliated with the Tom Petty Estate in any way. Um, and when you're looking for Tom's music, please visit the official YouTube channel, which is what I always use in the episode notes. Um, and make sure you use legitimate streaming services like Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Prime, all those types of things. But you know what? Even better than that, go buy physical media. Buy tape cassettes, buy vinyl, buy CDs. That, that actually makes a difference. And then you actually own it too. It's not just license, right? Um, don't forget to check out the Tom Petty Nation and Tom Petty Fans Forever groups on Facebook if you're not already a member. They are fantastic fan communities, well worth, worth your time, and there are some truly, truly wonderful people in them. Um, until we meet again next week, keep listening to and sharing Tom's music. Try to be kind. Try to say I love you to someone at least once a day. Stay safe and healthy, and I'll be back with you on New Year's Day for a special bonus episode where I'll be reviewing my first song not written or performed by Tom and the Heartbreakers. That's all I'm going to tell you for now, so you'll have to wait and see who and what it is later. Bye-bye.